This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. I am Mike Casazza, welcoming in Chris Anderson for the weekly Q&A. Chris, we talked Saturday, I'd say in, in split terms about we think about West Virginia football. It, it seems strange to be thinking about like ticker tape for beating Kansas, but they nevertheless do get to a bowl game by doing it. There's this whole conflict of emotions about celebrating that occasion or wondering what you're doing when you're celebrating six wins in the year 2021. I get all that, but as we're still trying to sort this out, business never really sleeps. And you got coaches already out recruiting, hard at work, trying to keep together a class that we thought for a long time was going to be the best in school history. Could maybe knock on the door of a top 25, top 20, top 15 class. That seemed too ambitious. But throughout the whole time, we kind of knew that it would be hard to keep it together, depending on the record and, and what happens with the Big 12 and schools going to the SEC and I'm not saying they're trying to hold together out there right now, but they have lost a few players. They're trying, probably trying to scoop up a few players from other schools, too. Um, and this is happening right away. We're not even 48 hours from that win. How quickly things do change, but that also happens on the recruiting trail, too. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, the game was on Saturday, and then Sunday began the new live period for recruiting, which allows coaches to go out and visit players in home, uh, and which is always a completely different you know, feel to the whole recruiting cycle. It, it kind of changes everything. It gets more personal um, and and it kind of lays the groundwork of who the top targets are, who the top commits are, who the coaching staff is focused on. And so you already saw them out on the road last night. They went and saw uh, current commit Raleigh Collins. Uh, they probably saw a handful of other guys, but Neil Brown was at Collins's house. <clears throat> and I got a VIP story up on the site right now where Neil Brown is expected today, Monday, um, and then uh, again on Tuesday, and then where some assistant coaches are going to be over the next couple of days as well. Obviously going to see all of the commitments over the next couple of weeks, and, but also some, uh, some, some uncommitted targets that they're trying to sway at the last minute. Because uh, each week during this period, these two weeks and then four weeks in January, if they're needed for anybody that's not signing in December, the assistant coaches can visit once a week as many times as they want. They can visit six times. Uh, the head coach, Neil Brown, can visit just once. So it used to be a thing where you really had to kind of, you know, you, do you want Neil Brown, you know, when there was no early signing period, do you want your head coach to visit in December early and then run the risk of being forgotten by the time we get to signing day in, in February? Or do you want to wait and have Neil Brown visit as the closer in January but run the risk of the kid committing elsewhere and shutting things down before you get there. It's kind of the same dilemma of do you want an early or a late official visit? Um, but some of that's gone with the early signing period. So these next couple of weeks are going to be kind of crazy. What do you think about the, I guess he would be the opener right now instead of the closer for someone like Collins. Does it make a difference? And, and maybe it's so important because they have whatever momentum they have. Hey, you can bottle it right now, right after this, this little surge at the end of the season. I guess that's the benefit, right? Yeah, I think uh, for some of these guys, a lot of the commitments you want to get in there, you know, close things down with them early. Um, again, I'll sneak a little bit of the VIP out from behind the paywall in that Jacoby Spells is supposed to be one of the visits, early visits this week. Now, he's a, he's one of the top commitments in the class, the top commitment in the class, excuse me, right now. And there hasn't been any sign from him that he's, you know, swaying, that he's listening to other schools, but a ton of other programs would love to have him. So West Virginia want to get, wants to get in there and say, hey, we are so glad to have you. We can't wait. Let's get this done. Let's shut this down. And, you know, so Neil Brown and Travis Trickett and Shadon Brown will be in to visit him on Tuesday. And then next week, you know, Tr Trickett will swing back by again, maybe Shadon Brown as well. 
and and see him again right before signing day and and just kind of hope to lock that down because he's i mean he's he's enrolling next month but with these currently committed players i think you're going to see neil brown go in earlier than for the uncommitted guys and all these assistant coaches can go out and answer the question as to yes i am under contract and i will be (laughs) on campus next season. How about that? At least until the day after signing day in February. Then everything can change. We know that too. But uh, smattering of feedback from our, our discussion on that Saturday. But there's a benefit too. You don't have to answer that question if some people on a podcast or reporters answer it for you by publicizing your business for everybody. So, hey, good for them. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of VIP, you did mention a little bit that you let out of the bag there too. One last time here to, to remind people. Still going on. Till the end of the day, 75% off the annual membership. If you're thinking of a gift, pretty good one. Does come with the Paramount Plus membership at the end of the promotional period, but 75% off is uh, pennies per story. Full access, the entire 24-7 network, which currently West Virginia, not the busiest place, has been before in the offseason. But when you think about everything that's happening in the Big 12 with schools, Replacing coaches right now, perhaps in the near future. Who knows how the dominoes fall, but also a lot of major openings and major news. Just yesterday, uh, plenty of discussion with the college football playoffs, so on and so forth. Hey, you could get the keys to any one of those VIP sites. Membership at one is the same as the other. Um, pretty good deal there. 75% off. Great gift for people or for yourself. And I say this because, quite frankly, we're not high enough in the rankings, Chris. <laughs> We're usually we like, I don't want to say like here. a heavyweight, but like per capita, uh, pound for pound champion, so on and so forth. We're usually pretty good on this stuff. And I don't know, it's thin times right now. Maybe we don't have enough news, but we should make up some news around here to get people behind the paywall. Yeah, usually uh, we like to hold it over some of our rivals' heads. Uh, it, it gets competitive just like it does on the football field. And, and you'll see us brag about being just ahead of, say, Maryland or Virginia Tech, you know, picking out obvious schools that West Virginia is rivals with. Um, right now, a couple of those programs, uh, not Maryland, but uh, a couple of those programs I'm talking about are ahead of us in the signups right now. So let's catch up. Let's pass them. Uh, I, I promise you it will be worth it. I mean, I can't even – we're talking over the course of an entire year. It, it is it is an, an entire year of coverage – Reduced ads on the site. When you are an annual member, you get the least amount of ads possible. Um, you're going to get all the stories that we write, access the entire network. And I think when you take out that 75%, we're talking, what, $20, $22, $25, something like that for the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty good deal. I mean, you're not even talking dinner here. And you can get something that you can enjoy for 12 whole months. So. Be sure to hop on it. It ends at midnight. This isn't one of those things where we say it ends and then it's, oh, hey, one more day. No, midnight, that's it. Hard stop. So jump in now while you still can. It's a group of five school ahead of us. A group? Uh, yeah, well, well, I got, I was about to make a joke, but the only people that understand the joke are the people who are VIP members on our site. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, good point. Because, yeah. I'm circling the, that one. If we don't end up the, above that one, I'm going to be mad. Yeah. No offense yep. to that school. I'm sure they've done a great job. There's good things going on there. Don't get me wrong. Good second half of the season for that school, but come on. We're better than yeah. this, right? Yep. Uh, speaking of better than this, let's get the uh, end of the banter here and go right to the Q&A. Questions about all sorts of things happening, all sorts of sports. Um, I don't know if we're getting any volleyball or men's soccer, but volleyball makes the tournament. Yeah. Men's soccer deep into the tournament. Dan Stratford is as good as advertised, it turns out. That was a big-time hire, not only because of his ties to the school, but just how good he is at what he does. And then Reed Sonara has been slowly but steadily getting closer to this, and he gets his team into the volleyball tournament for the first time. So it's not just football and basketball. I'm not sure how much we'll talk about either one of those. Probably not much, but, hey, tip of the cap to them. It's more than just football and basketball. And, um, again, good stories for both those teams late into the season, now into the postseason. Uh, Well, you ready to – on these questions, do you want to start with – West Virginia coaching questions or elsewhere coaching questions? Let's go elsewhere and then to West Virginia because they may tie together. Okay. Um, let's jump right into it, to the big news from the other day. Who takes the OU job from Roku, Roku ear? Let's, make, let's keep it simple. 
What 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 are Oklahoma's options? Whoever they want. That's not named Lincoln Riley, right? That's that's like a a turnkey job. In that Oklahoma has a ton of money and a ton of resources and is now going to the SEC, so that's pretty great. And Oklahoma, what I said, it's pretty great. Sure, it's daunting, but Oklahoma's going to spend and do whatever it has to do, especially now that it lost Lincoln Riley of the Pac-12, to make sure it makes a splash. So whoever comes in is going to get a blank check. That's not just salary, but what has to happen um, for infrastructure purposes, for recruiting purposes, just so that this transition works. Because right now, the I think the perception is that Lincoln Riley did not want anything to do with the SEC. Right. Kind of liked what he did, kind of like what he had when you have your best team and you get ragdolled by Coach O in, in the national semifinal and they haven't had great success in the CFP. I think that he thinks that it's extremely hard to get into the CFP in the SEC, which is why he had no interest in the LSU job, apparently, or little or not enough. And then I think that it was pretty clear he was not happy with going to the SEC with the with the way things were going and just the 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 press conferences that I watched and the things I read, the amount of indifference that it seemed like existed toward the move from athletics was strange to me. And there were a lot of questions about the administration, the athletic director or the president, the, the football coach and how that was going to work. That was just unusual to me that, that you kind of always got that line of questioning. So I really think they're going to have to do something huge here and they can. So I think it's going to be somebody who's got a big time name and identity, which makes me think like maybe Mark Stoops isn't it. And that one does make a lot of sense. I think some other ones you could look at that would make sense would be like Jay Norvell from Nevada. Does that make sense? Sure. But like, is that going to make this work? Because you really have to make sure this works now because you've lost your your generational coach to the Pac-12. And if you take a step down, then all of a sudden this this move doesn't have nearly the momentum. And then you're trying to figure out, all right, who do we get? And then I think they can probably put together a list. And I, I don't know if like Luke Fickle's flashy enough i don't know if like matt campbell is flashy enough a lot of the coaches names i have i have seen i don't know if they're flashy enough so they could probably get whoever they want i think but they're going to try to get whoever they want there too so you know guys you would look at would be like brent venables or josh heupel those would be two big names there Heupel's a guy who obviously has connections to the school is doing it in the sec right now just one year i get that but his offensive pedigree would certainly fit not only as a player, but as a coach, he's one of them. It, it could work. I think that would be a big one. You get an SEC guy to help you into the SEC. Does he know everything about the SEC? No, not at all. And then and Venables would be interesting because of his ties to the school. It's a defensive coach in the Big 12, which is kind of what everybody's doing. But also look at the SEC. You're going to have to have some defensive acumen. He certainly has that. He could put together a staff. I have no question. I also think that like it could be someone that we're not even thinking of right now because I think the job is that attractive. I think and- – I, I see the hot boards, I see the lists, I see the names mentioned with this, and and I, my first thought was, you've already mentioned him, Brent Venables. Like, is, this is the one that finally gets him to leave that defensive coordinator job because he's been mentioned with openings basically every single season. And oftentimes it's been viewed as, yeah, but, you know, he's the defensive coordinator for a national champion. Is he going to leave for X? Um He'll leave for Oklahoma, I would think. Like I, I don't, th- I don't see how that's not a, a an enormous step up. And as you mentioned, this job has to be extremely attractive to anybody because typically when jobs are opening up, it's because a coach got fired a, or a good job, a, a good high profile job. When those open up, it's because a coach got fired. The roster's in turmoil. The team is losing. This isn't the case. This is one of those extremely rare instances where a coach left essentially a blue blood program in good shape with a lot of returning players, with a lot of talent, with a great recruiting class. Well, 48 hours ago is a great recruiting class, but it's unbelievable. And it, it's there. It's there. You, you any basically, Mike, you and I, I mean, we're amazing coaches, obviously, yeah. could step right in and win 10 games next year. Like that team is that good that I think essentially any decent coach can step right in and win 10 games right away. It is a dream scenario for a lot of longtime football coaches and good football coaches. Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> Did you like it? I, I retweeted whoever, who was that? I want to give him credit for the joke, but um, 
Adam Kramer, uh, ke- old kegs and eggs. Did you see what he said? No. They, they, he he quote tweeted the Adam Schefter tweet said that Oklahoma's targeting Cliff Kingsbury as one of the potential replacements for Lincoln Riley. Kingsbury has one year remaining on his contract. And he goes, hey, quote, Adam, tweet this. Okay, buddy. Like, that's just an obvious, that just feels like the most planted. I mean, maybe he is an option, but that Schefter tweeting that out just feels like the most obviously agent planted, Kingsbury planted tweet of all time. I would want nothing to do with that. I, I'm not sure he'd want to do with it, anything with it, too. Like, that's it, the difference in quality of life for an NFL coach is significant. I'm sure he's experiencing that. That that just seemed like it, for that for the reason you're talking about, it just came out of nowhere for probably a purpose, too. Um, Mario Cristobal is another one, too. That guy's attached to a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. And which makes me like things aren't perfect in, the, or in Oregon. And maybe that's just because of the proximity of where he's from and where he is right now. Oklahoma's closer to like Miami and South Florida. I get that. But he's also going to be an SEC coach, which I think is something he had thought about wanting to be for a long time. It would be the opposite of a Lincoln Riley move, leaving the Pac-12 to go to Oklahoma. But that's a name I wouldn't count out. He's always he's always attached to these jobs and like as a candidate. And that's an offensive line coach you can really, really recruit. And when you think about when Oklahoma's been great and how it's going to have to be great in the SEC, the offensive line has to make it work. Um, that's a guy who can definitely do that. They'll recruit at a high level. I'm really curious to see what type of staff that Riley puts together. And then it doesn't include Grinch. Does it include Biedenboe? Does it include uh, Gundy? There, there are some heavy-duty coaches he's had in that staff that have been there for a long time before him. How many come with him and how many want to go out into the free agency? Because all of a sudden, Bill Biedenboe would be one of the best assistant coaches out there on the market. Maybe a G5 head coach, maybe a P5 offensive coordinator. But you know, does he want to go? Will he get to go to – the West Coast, because, man, recruiting out in California is something they've done pretty well at. It's something they're going to have to be aces at now, which means they're going to have to get a very particular staff. I'm not sure how many of the assistants will make the trip with them or how many want to, but for so many reasons, it really does shake up the coaching searches, and not just for the head coaches, but for the all the assistant coaches, too, because there are some good coaches on that staff who may not want to go or who may not get to go out West. Yeah, the the Cristobal thing is is – I don't know the situation out there in Oregon, but I mean, he went to, this was this week, I believe he was, or right now he's, I think he's flying back down to Florida and at this time of year, you, oh, he's flying to Florida. Oh, that, yeah, he's going on a recruiting trip, except there wasn't a recruit that he was going to see. And all of a sudden the, the media were all over him about where he was going. And it turns out he's going to see like his sick mother in South Florida. And I think it's just such a, I, I don't know if it's, it's the, the people there, in Oregon, just just freaking out, thinking that he's gone, or that there are just that many rumors, just that many connections that they ha- there's a feeling that he could leave at any time. Because I mean, he, he's going to see his sick mother, and it was a thought that oh, he's going to sneakily interview to take over the Miami job somehow, even though it's not even open right now. It's like, wait, uh, everybody, calm down a little bit. Calm down a little bit. Are we seeing residuals of the move? Or Texas, not necessarily, but certainly Oklahoma to the SEC. Like, is this cooled off quite a bit, and it's not nearly the the cause celebrity that it was before? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's everything that you know. I think I know you and I said it, or at least I, I know we discussed it, and a lot of people said it when it happened. And Texas and Oklahoma people were thinking, ah, that's just you know sour grapes. This is a terrible move for them. Like, they're not going to make that much more money. It's going to be a lot harder to get into the college football playoff. It's going to be a lot harder to win games. They might end up, I mean, they might end up taking a step back. I don't know about financially, but as far as a program goes, because, I mean, Texas is going 5-7 and seven in the Big 12 right now. They're going to go to the SEC and get better? I don't think so. They are recruiting at a high level. They, they have to get, you know, they have to get the right hires and the coaching staff, get a good scheme, all that stuff first. It doesn't matter what conference you're in. And Oklahoma... As you noted, you, you know, they struggle every time they play an SEC team, every time they get into the college football playoffs. This seems like one of the most obvious Lincoln Riley bailing because he knows it's not going to work kind of thing. Like, it just, you know, I don't think Oklahoma's going to just all of a sudden crater into a nothing program or a 500 program, nothing like that. But I think Lincoln Riley's, oh, hey, I can go to USC, get probably better recruits, easier in a nicer location and have a much easier path to the college football playoff than I would if I were at Oklahoma. So, see ya. Bye. 
I, I do think it's working against these two programs now. Yeah. And I'm not sure enough people care or enough important people care or, or no. we'll be able to fix that too, because if they go in and they start splashing four and eight or five and seven seasons in the SEC, everybody's going to laugh at them. It's going to be hard to get out of it too. So that'll be tricky too. Uh, let's get to this one. Mark Stoops would make sense in that the name just makes sense down there. And he's, he's like the only Stoops I think maybe ever that hasn't coached at Oklahoma, but mm-hmm. he's already in the SEC. I guess he'd be a really good hand in that he could quickly learn or, or he could, relate to the culture at Oklahoma because it's been in the family for so long. Both brothers, head coach, defensive coordinator there. Um, so again, that could help Oklahoma as to a transition. It would be, I mean, profile money and upgrade for Mark Stoops. I just don't know that it makes sense beyond the name. Like if his name was like Mark Smith, I don't, I don't know that it happened. So I guess the name is the big deal here. And Bob Stoops is probably going to have a lot to say in recruiting or suggesting who takes that job. But Mark Stoops makes sense because he would understand what to do. He might end up in that same East division. I'm not sure how they'll break that up. We'll see. But recruiting Oklahoma, I don't know. That's like his you know, a great thing. He's already doing good stuff in Ohio, getting him to Kentucky. I think it's probably easier to sell Ohio to kids in or sell Kentucky to kids in Ohio than it is to sell Oklahoma to kids in Ohio. So that Oklahoma is a bigger, better brand. I just don't know this one makes any sense, and I'm going somewhere with this because it's it's fun, but that's a name that makes sense. I'm not sure it's a coach that makes sense, but that does seem like it's going to get some some momentum, some gravity in the search. How many games above or below 500 do you believe he is in the SEC? He took over the Kentucky job in 2013, so was it nine seasons now? Mm-hmm. He's significantly under, right? Like he's a full season right. under 500. 29 and 45 in the okay, SEC. So two seasons under 500. Okay. Yeah. Um, he is 16 games under 500 in SEC play. And this is where this whole, like, I know, oh, it's just eight games or just nine games. It's just one game difference between the eight-game conference schedule and the nine-game conference schedule that the Big 12 plays. Because these SEC programs, they build up on that non-conference on just absolute cupcakes. And that includes Kentucky. Because according to this, Stoops, Mark, is above 500 as a coach at Kentucky. He is 58 and 53 overall and 29 and 45 in the SEC. 16 games under 500 in the SEC. Like, you know, it, it's so 58 and 53 at Kentucky. Oh, that sounds great. Until you remember that they're still terrible in the SEC. They're still bottom of the pack. I mean, this year, 93 is pretty solid. Second in the East Division, I believe or at least tied for it, but that's like best-case scenario is finishing second in the division, which is fourth overall in in the league. Like, that's their best-case scenario right now, and and probably for the foreseeable future, maybe even worse if Texas and Oklahoma come in and and things don't go south for them. So, as you you said, if this guy's last name wasn't Stoops, would we even be talking about him? And the answer is no. No, we wouldn't. That's why they could cross him off. He's done a great job there. They're over. They're twenty games above five hundred the past couple of years. After he was, I forget, maybe fourteen, sixteen games under five hundred his first few years too. So he's done a great job there. Got his recruiting down as a really good staff. Uh, I just, I just don't see that working unless they're getting deep into their search. In which case, I don't know. Maybe Bob Stoops hangs around for more than the bowl game and just does one more year. <laughs> maybe it's like a, uh, maybe he's like Jim Grobe <laughs> for a full season and just does a coaching. Uh, internship until they find somebody good too. With uh, Castiglione, the athletic director, maybe I put too much credit in these athletic directors. I think they can screw it up a lot of times. They oftentimes do. He's a pretty good one, but he hasn't had to search for a football coach because Riley fell into his lap. So um, you always think about like what surprise name is out there, what relationship do they have? Because Riley to USC is a surprise that everybody missed. Everybody's talking about LSU, and all of a sudden USC comes in 11th hour and scoops them up. Um, but then it's a big, big deal for however long in the Big 12. They're in the Big 12. I think that they're going to have some sort of turnover. Their recruiting classes the next two years are gutted. And there were questions as to whether or not they had Oklahoma quantity talent on the field, never mind quality talent. So, I don't know. They might be right for the pick in the next couple of years, which leads me to this. If it's Mark Stoops that goes to uh, Oklahoma, 
how quickly does Neil Brown's name come up for tech for the Kansas job? Because that's going to happen if it hasn't happened already, right? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be one of the first ones mentioned. I just don't know how realistic that one would be either. I mean, I think it's it's something that will get discussed. I'm sure if it is legitimate, it's something he'll consider. But, I mean, I just – I think – the perception of Neil Brown as far as coaching, college coaching circles goes, and maybe not, maybe this is just like the public media perception has come back down quite a bit this season. I mean, I think it was at a, do I want to say fever pitch last year? Mm. But I just, I wonder how many schools are have Neil Brown at the top of their list right now. Would you rather coach in that loaded SEC or in the new Big 12 if you're no. going to make about the same money and you're you're from about the same proximity, not the same proximity from home, but fairly close? Um, he, it's one reason he likes WVU is that it's close enough to Kentucky for him. It's not down the road like Lexington to Danville in the sense that's down the road, but certainly closer than Morgantown is. But we're talking about how a guy like Riley or schools like Texas and Oklahoma may live to regret this. So I wonder if a coach who's got this moving, I think, that he thinks in the right direction – just to go back to his, the school he started his college career at and was a coach at for three seasons, does that make a ton of sense for him? Who Only he knows, and it's, it's way too far ahead, but I, I know people are going to panic about that as soon as you have Mark Stoops' report that he's interviewing, never mind took the job, and they wonder how that goes. Um, paying Neil Brown's buyout would be considerably easier because Stoops' buyout is huge, too. I want to say it's in excess of $20 million. So if, um, if Stoops left for Oklahoma – they're going to have something like $20 million to pay or to help pay a buyout out of West Virginia they had to do. So money doesn't really matter in these things. You're going to do what you have to do for football. But I don't know. I would say just logically think through a lot of these things, too. Don't re- don't read everything and don't believe everything you read. Kind of have a few sources and trust them. But at least wait till the ink is on the paper, right? Don't don't create these scenarios that haven't yet happened like I just did. Uh, I think maybe your your comment there a second ago, uh, answers this next question, but from SJJ SWVU4, is there a financial breaking point for a university when it comes to football? The Penn State Michigan State game had over $170 million tied up in head coaches alone. Throw on top assistant coaches' salaries, the continuous buyout, expansion of facilities, stadium upgrades, and I just wonder if this model is sustainable. How long before a majority of schools become complete pawns to the high net worth boosters that can make any financial issues go away? That's that's kind of already happening. I think it's a great point. Like crystal ballish, how is this going to go? Because I think a lot of people are under the impression that TV contracts are going to swell, but is that just for the SEC? Like if the SEC is consolidating all these names and these brands – that doesn't mean the Pac-12 and the ACC are going to get the same thing. Everybody's complaining and, and wringing their hands about moving to the ACC because of its television package. I think a lot of people are, are wise to worry that that money might not be there, which then means, well, the demand and the prices for coaches and retaining coaches are going to continue to go up. So the money has to be somewhere, but who has the money? It's going to be the people who want to give you the money, which means you have to let them in the room Um that that seems kind of draconian, but I think that's probably that's like a that's not a fun worry, but I think that's like a worry that you can have and say that's probably grounded in some level of reality too. I still think that there's going to be a ton of money in streaming that's just going to kind of revitalize the broadcast income flow. I don't know if it'll be the same level that people anticipated. I don't know if you noticed, but the economy is kind of hurting, so that could be difficult for some people, some businesses, some corporations, some major brand names and media. But I think it's going to be there, and I think people are going to consume. And we say what we will about whether or not the SEC reboot is going to work, but it's going to have dynamite attention. Like it's going to have some of the biggest names and they're going to package this thing up into like the sliced bread of college football seasons. When it does come around, it's going to be marquee viewing. It's going to be, you know, set your DVR viewing, whatever you want to call it in 2020, whatever. So it's going to be certainly, I think, lucrative. Not everybody's going to have that though. So how do those schools, how do those leagues compensate? That's probably the bigger question mark, I think, as to whether or not boosters are going to be involved. But I think certainly some schools, I mean, look at Houston, for example. Like Houston is is acting a lot like a Power 5 team. It's going to get a seat at the Power 5 table soon, but it had a booster. It had it had money that was influential and kind of got rid of one coach to go get another. And it's worked out, I think you could say, at least this season, they're pretty good. They have a great offense. They have a great defense. It's 11 and one with a, a shot more than a, more than a shot at Cincinnati Saturday. But are there other schools in that group of five level 
or that fringe power five level who could just cobble together enough financial influence absolutely they could absolutely so who are they and then and more importantly who's the person listening to this or who's the person who gets this idea of i got some money i'll throw it around but i want to have some some influence i want to have some 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 feedback from the athletic director on the thoughts that i give with my donation i think that's an interesting idea so uh, frequently like where you where you go and and who what businesses or what donors or what boosters are in the in the infrastructure that that matters i think that's something that could certainly be a part of the the formula in the future and who is that is the question and and is that part of realigning the chairs at the table too is one school a little bit higher because it has some of that not dark money, but that outside money, that non-traditional money that comes from an athletic department's revenue streams. Yeah, when I read the second part of that question, how long before a majority of schools become complete pawns to high net worth boosters? Complete was the word, uh, right? <laughs> I was going to say, it's uh, how long before that? Uh, negative few years? Like, it's it's already happening. Like, that's, that's already the case in a lot of places, and, and those guys do have sway. Those guys decide... I mean, you will hear and see, and and we've seen it at West Virginia, that high money boosters have some thoughts on who should be coach. Uh, we've seen guys get fired, not just at West Virginia, but everywhere, um, because high money donors don't like that coach. And and, and they are pawn. Like, the, the, the school is reliant on their money, and – this is what comes with it. You, you know, it, it's not no strings attached cash for the school to spend as they wish. Um, it, it comes with at least a little bit of influence from them. So it, it's already happening. I don't know if there's an exact number for West Virginia. I don't think there's an exact number for anybody of when it becomes a breaking point because it's always just going to be however much these these donors and these TV contracts allow. And I don't. I don't believe I. I don't know if he's insinuating that a bubble is coming. I think that's that's there's some potential for that, depending on what comes up with the next round of realignment and the next round of contracts. But I don't think anybody's overstretching themselves right now. I mean, these numbers sound absolutely ridiculous. I mean, ninety some million dollars for Michigan State uh, for Mel Tucker at Michigan State, right? Was it ten years, ninety some million, or however much money it was? It was it was a lot, mm-hmm. and it sounds absolutely absurd but this is something you and i have said on this podcast a couple times already these schools do not make deals that they can't afford to get out of like these numbers sound crazy but they can afford it they offered it for a reason and it's because they had the money secured either through donations tv contracts whatever they have the money and that's it so they'll do it I think there is a, a breaking point, though, because look at what Indiana did. They fired one of their coordinators, but their offensive coordinator, and they subsidized that move in part by having their head coach take a $200,000 annual deduction. Um, so that number exists because if it was just like, let's fire this guy and pay him to go away, you wouldn't be asking your coach to cut like a, I think it's about a million dollars off his salary. So is Indiana the same as West Virginia? No. But is is the difference the same as Texas and West Virginia? No. So I think you have to have some antenna up about that and what it is. And I think, listen, it's it's I don't, I'm not graping about this, but I, I think that re-signing your seven coaches that were going on to their expiring contract year transactionally doesn't make sense or doesn't make a big difference. And it does make sense that you have everybody together for one more year coming up. I get that. But Again, if this went bad and and if they went five and seven instead of six and six, you're probably making some changes. You still probably are making some changes, but you're paying coaches to go away that you didn't have to pay if you just waited until the time to sit down at the bargaining table. Like what momentum did they have last year in March or April that was so powerful to do this? Like who was coming to get these coaches and why was it so important to to do it? Could you just waited? And then if you're paying three coaches, I don't know, two hundred thousand dollars a year to go away. That's $600,000 that you could have that you didn't have to waste. So, and again, it's mitigated because if those coaches land somewhere, you only pay the difference and you only pay if they make less of their new spot. So it's, it's not even going to be 600 grand, but still that's the, the, the dice game you're playing too. It's because those dollars do add up. And at some time you may have to say, listen, I will fire that coach for you, but you're going to have to pay for it. And it's like that scene in Moneyball where they try to get the reliever from, um, 
where do they try to get reliever from? San Francisco. And Billy Bean says, all right, I'll pay it. I'll pay the, the, the money that we need to subsidize the salary. But when I sell them back, I'm going to make the money back. Well, I'm not sure that Tom Allen's going to make back his million dollars if they make a bowl game in a couple of years. But that's kind of like the horse trade that may have to happen here in the future, too. Like, yeah, I'll fire this guy, but we're going to cut your salary as a result of this. And that's that's kind of scary, to be honest, because I wonder how many ADs see that and say, well, they broke the glass. We might as well reach and see if it works in my place. Are you already reading the tea leaves on what the next question was going to be for the mailbag? No, but I have great interest in it now. Well, it's from Wicked Jesser. You mentioned the assistant coaching contracts at West Virginia. He asked, what prompted you to look into the coaching contracts at WVU? Curiosity or were there whispers about something? Still odd that no one mentioned the extensions when they happened. Um, combination. Say that I guess I mean I wrote I wrote somebody I, I said that we should talk about coaching contracts and I also I hadn't looked into it since March or February and then two individuals reached out to me and said you should definitely look into the contracts so we were we were talking hypothetically about the cost of making changes and what the finances were involved I think that was in a three things piece and two people one on Twitter and one on the board had messaged me and said you should look into that because things have changed and I said really that doesn't make any sense and then we found out that seven of the coaches have been quietly without announcement, without celebration, have been extended. So they're all 10 under contract for next season. Were these sources the guys that you uh, supposedly have on payroll, Mike? Yeah. You want to go there? All right. Exclusive. Exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a pretty straightforward question from Leiden. Are bowl games meaningless? No, but they don't mean as much. Like you, you can't watch the game at a level that it's more uncommon than common. So, like some of these group of five games and even power five games for teams that haven't been up for a while, like you could tell it means a lot to players. It just doesn't mean as much as it used to. And that's because there's too many of them. It's not a special to make it. Like a six win season when you go 500 is not. I don't think it's a great season. And when you see people bailing on the games. And saying, oh, I don't want to play in the whatever dot combo because I want to get ready for the combine. That kind of answers your question. It's not meaningless. That's too strong of a word. That's too universal in a sport in a world that doesn't really allow for that type of application. But they don't mean as much as they used to. I don't think there's any arguing that. Correct. I'm with you 100 percent. I think it's it's losing something, uh, a lot of something, but. I do not believe you're going to ever see them really go away because to put it in perspective, here is the numbers for last year when, by the way, uh, viewing was down overall for the whole season. Um, The Camellia Bowl between Marshall and Buffalo 2.1 2.1 million viewers. 2.1 million viewers for that game. And I, I mean that's not even that's like middling number middling numbers as far as bowl season goes. That would that finished higher than Auburn South Carolina last week. Not this past weekend, but the weekend before. <laughs> that finished higher than Oklahoma State, Texas Tech on Fox. Finished higher than UCLA, USC, Wake, Clemson, Georgia Tech, Notre Dame on NBC. They do numbers still. That's all that matters. That is that is that is where the money is coming in for this because obviously, like players are dropping out, um, fans are not actively going to see these games in person unless they're you know the, some of the bigger bowls. Like no one's going to see some of these lower bowls. So they, they, I'm just. This is where the money's coming from, and those numbers are – it's like a, a super a super weekend for college football. All these numbers are higher than they, they normally would be for teams, <clears throat> and so it, it's still going to be around. So they're not meaningless because they drive a lot of revenue for the sport, and as we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, they need it. They need the money. Yeah, and there's always those those shots on Twitter of like, Here's the stadium and kickoff of this bowl game 15 minutes before it starts. And here's the, the parking lot afterwards. It's I don't I mean, by and large, the games are not for the fans. 
There's a right. couple. Obviously, they are. But by and large, they're rewards for players that and teams to get like one more game and to go get like quartered around town for a week and to get a shopping spree and a gift bag and all that stuff and have your families come and, and watch you play one more time either that season or in your career. You go to a destination you've never been to before and you play a team you never played before and you're on national television. And for a lot of schools, that doesn't happen a whole lot. So that's fine, too. And then it's the same as the NCAA tournament. How many how many sold out venues are there in the first and second rounds of the NCAA tournament? Hardly any. But it's really not about the fans in that case. Like, but they're all going to watch on TV because it's on. You got to fill programming. That's more true for bowls in the NCAA tournament because when the bowls are on. But a Tuesday night bowl game, who's watching that? Probably somebody. So it, why does it exist? That's what matters. Does that still have meaning? Absolutely. That still has meaning for advertisers and for broadcasters. Uh, let's see here. Where do we want to go? Where do we want to go for the next question? I got I got a, a simple one to ask you real quick while I look for something else. Yeah. I'm gonna go go off topic from Jay Cart, three or four. Favorite holiday beverage? Cider, hot chocolate, spiked eggnog. Third well, wow, this is wow, I didn't even realize this was a shot at me. Thirteen month old holiday themed buds from the back of the garage fridge. Not my favorite. <laughs> um my wife was extremely excited that the Case of Bud Light seltzers from last Christmas are back in style. So, do you think those are going to taste any good? Fresh or old? These no, are just, the, no the, the, these are the Bud Light seltzer, the peppermint, what is it? The oh. peppermint seltzer from Christmas 2020. It's back. God. Oh, man. Are they a sponsor? No, we'll have to check okay. into that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you, you can you can s- snarl and disgust. It's okay. You're not upsetting any sponsors on that one. It's not their fault. It's just that the, the combination of flavors there didn't sound good. Uh, man, I'm not usually a cocktail person, but there are some fun winter cocktails or Christmas cocktails that involve, like, dark liquors and, and things like that that are pretty good. There was one the other day that someone served me. I had bourbon and rum chata, which is like a, like a creamed rum drink. That was actually pretty good. And I hadn't really, that's not something I would like get a shaker and make up myself. But I think I'm more open to flavors and experiences than just like opening a can or pouring something over ice and going from that. So a favorite? I don't know. I'm assuming we're talking adult beverages, but anything like kind of a big coffee guy too. So coffee's always good. And especially when you're out like something cold, a market, or if you're out shopping, or whatever, that's good. But if you're around people that you want to socialize with or just around your house because you're trying to unwind from shopping, wrapping, whatever. I'm more of a, I, I can I can be convinced in having a, like a seasonal cocktail at Christmas that you wouldn't catch me in other times of the year. I might have to try that. As I say, if you're going uh, non-alcoholic, my big thing is it's like the only time I go to Starbucks, really, except for just a regular black coffee. Mm. Um, and I only do that rarely. Uh, a peppermint mocha kind of fills mm. both both of my needs. So a little, little, little chocolate, little coffee, little pick me up and a little peppermint it's like the only way i can tolerate peppermint too because yeah that peppermint seltzer disgusting candy canes not that big of a fan uh but a little peppermint mocha that's i can make that okay um now with the easy transition here to basketball mm-hmm. from wvug 13 what changes would you make to the starting lineup and rotations i'll leave out the details he kind of breaks down, you know, what Keedy's done, uh, Cottrell's done and not done and so on. What, 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 uh, from what you've seen so far, what are some of the moves you would make for that starting lineup and the rotations? Man, I, I don't know because have there been many patterns to you apart from the starting lineup? No. Yeah. So I'm not sure what I like yet. I was looking at some of the Evan Mia stuff and there's some ones that work that you, you kind of like, but I still think the hugging just kind of using a canvas here and is just trying to get it situated before, probably before the UAB game, a road game right before they come back home and play Youngstown state. And then January one, Texas. So really time's ticking, but I just keep thinking about that five position, what you're going to do. And, and that does affect Cottrell. And I'm not sure he's a starter right now until he gets his offense together and, and, and maybe the offense is affecting him on defense and rebounding. And maybe he's just not a defender or rebounder yet or ever. I don't know. There's a lot There's a lot left to him. that, And he's still kind of clay in the sense that there's a ton of molding to happen. And we got to remember, he's not even a year out from rupturing an Achilles. So far be it from us to be disappointed that he's not where you think he's supposed to be right now. Like he, We're kind of fortunate to even see him on the floor. So 
I'm willing to give him some time there too. I just so I just come back to how different is the offense going to be with Osaboyan, Cottrell, and then I think Kerrigan and Polygap are probably interchangeable. So let's just say those quote three, and you almost have to be different offensively, which makes you think like, gosh, how what do you do with that five? Like you can't play without a five. I get that, but do you almost play without a without a big under the basket? And then, um, just ball screening and. I think Kerrigan and Polycap could be like if the floor is spread and they're setting high ball screens, they can be dash and dunk guys who set the screen and go to the basket and they catch it above the rim and jam it. Or they catch it off the floor and they jam it or lay up or they catch and they kick out to the corner. Like there's a whole bunch of fun, high pick and roll stuff that I think you can have with them. And if they get that going, man, you can do a lot when you spread the floor. If you can just have that high pick and roll. And I'm just thinking in my head here, if you put, either Sherman on the ball or Sherman and McNeil around the corners and then Keity Johnson with the ball, whatever. But like, if you're setting a pick with Kerrigan, who can do this? And let's say you're, you're Curry, you get that pick and all of a sudden you're going downhill, but on your hip, Kerrigan's going downhill. You've got like two on one going to the basket. And then you could also go to your left to McNeil or go up top to bridges or to Sherman or whatever. Like there's a lot of stuff you can actually do if you get high ball screen stuff, I don't think Osaboyan is an above the rim player, but he can definitely set screens and roll. And then Cottrell, I don't know. Like, is he an above the rim guy? Probably because he's athletic and he's big, but is he like a screen and fade kind of guy or a pick and fade kind of guy? Pick and pop, I guess you would call it. I don't know, but I just think they're going to be so offensively different at that five position because of who they have and, and how, how different all the skill sets are. And I, I just can't get past that. Like, it's a hard question for me to answer because I just think like you got to play somebody big, but you're going to be different no matter who you play at that spot. Like there, you don't have universal offensive skills at that position where in the past their bigs were all kind of the same. Like maybe one was better than the other, but like Devin Williams to Elijah Macon was, was pretty similar. And Sags was obviously like just a, a guy who became a three point player, but like he, offensively he could do some things inside that were not different than what they had at that big position, even though he wasn't as big, but now Osaboy, not a gifted offensive player, Cottrell probably not a five or like he's a four stretch. And how can you get Paula cap and Kerrigan to become offensive players or how can you wrap an offense around them? Would you wrap an offense around them? Don't know. So I just, I just, there's four that you always like, but who's that fifth one. That's the one thing I keep coming back to. They got to figure that out because they, they have some offensive firepower around those four, around that one, I guess, with the other four they put out there. Yeah, the, so the, the two spots that really seem to be up in the air, the point guard and the center, I, I think point guard maybe is a little more settled because it just seems that it's, hey, it's Curry and, and Keity Johnson and try to figure it out, hope Keity doesn't get into foul trouble. Curry is probably your closer um, as far as the point guard position goes. But then center, I... <clears throat> Uh, hadn't really thought about it the way you just put it. and But maybe that answers my, I guess, confusion is a good word, or trying to figure out what to do there, is that they are so different, all four of those guys. I mean, except for Kerrigan and Polycap, as you noted, being basically the same. Uh, Osa Boyne's different and, and Cottrell's different. But I, I, I think we're going to find out over the next couple games which way Huggins is going to trend at that spot because – I was caught a little off guard to start the year that Polycap wasn't playing more because I had multiple capital S sources. I mean, guys that have given me some of the best information possible on basketball over the years tell me that Polycap was like the best big man, you know, outside of Gabe, um, all preseason, all practices, all the scrimmages, all everything. And then to not really see him play, and to not really, I mean, he was, I think he played four minutes in the opener. I mean, he still hasn't played more than what, I think he broke 10 minutes for the first time against Eastern Kentucky um, and still only 13 minutes. But I, I think it, 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 it caught me off guard that it, it, he could be talked up so much and then basically be an afterthought for the first few games of the year. So maybe he's just kind of working his groove in. Again, he's very similar to Kerrigan. So if you think of it like that, that you need a guy like that, which is what, I think I, I've thought since last year they need that rim protector big guy, even if they're not um, offensively inclined. You add those two together, and they're getting 25 minutes a game or so in the last couple games. So 
maybe that's the move. Maybe it's trending that direction. Maybe that's the way that Huggins sees this going. But yeah, they got to figure out that center position. And and if I'm making a prediction, if if I'm in charge, I'm going more with Kerrigan and and Polycap at the five, and then you try to swing Gabe in there. And depending on the matchup, maybe you go small. Uh, Cottrell again, he's good. He's talented. But I, I was, I mean, heck. In August and stuff, when we were talking basketball, my assumption that was that Cottrell wasn't even going to be playing until January, February, if that. Uh, I mean, as as you said, like he's back from a torn Achilles faster than anybody I think I've ever seen, and so I'm not. I wasn't expecting him to play at all. So I, I understand that you know he hasn't been playing well the last couple games, but I think it's just trying to find the right fit for him and making sure he's 100% healthy. Um, I'd play him alongside one of these bigs if you could, if the matchup allows it. But that's probably where I'd make the only change right now. The, what's fascinating for me here is that, like, just kind of for fun, asked aloud in the preseason, like, do you have to have a point guard? Like, if you're not sure about Kedrian Johnson and Malik Curry, do you have to have one? Like, why couldn't you play Sherman, McNeil, Bridges, Cottrell, Osaboyan? You could do something like that where you could ask – McNeil and Sherman and probably heavier on Sherman to do some point guard stuff. And because really, once you get the ball into the motion, you're, you're pretty much all point guards. And then there have been whispers that Bridges was doing some ball handling and was doing more with the ball stuff on offense, starting with the ball rather than just catching it and shooting it. You're thinking, all right, they got a couple different ball handlers and they got a big who can stretch the floor and they got Osaboyan who at his best is capable of catching and distributing the ball. But you, you can see something there like, all right, if Cottrell or excuse me, if Curry and Johnson don't have it or they're not there yet, you don't have to be a one, two, three, four, five lineup. You could be two, two, three, four, five, something like that. You can't do that without a big. Like you have to be big. Like you have to have someone who can play defense or rebound. Otherwise you're gonna get smoked. So there is no way around that. There's no point guardless lineup when you're talking about the center. There's no centerless lineup. You might have Osaboyan who's not a center, but like if he's offensively struggling or I'm not rooting for this or predicting this, but like if he breaks down because he's taking charges and just killing himself for the amount of time he's on the floor, because he has played a volatile amount of basketball this season. Like he's his crash slash floor burn per minute ratio is pretty high. It's gotta be one of the higher rates in the country, whatever stat that is. Can he do that for 31 regular season games? If you're West Virginia, if you're Gabe, you certainly hope so, but it's just human for that stuff to add up. And if he takes a dip offensively or defensively and, Man, I don't know if I want to take that charge because the last one really hurt. That's very human. And the point is that, like, you, like, what do you do? Like, you, you can't not have somebody in there. You can't play Sherman at, in center, at center, to, to continue that kind of comparison. Like, you have to have somebody with size, and you're just not seeing, like, Senny Njai or probably not seeing James Oconquo. Um, so they have to find something with those four guys, I think. Maybe it's Engine in the future, but that's not happening yet. And it's maybe it's Oconquo, but he's probably going to redshirt even if he plays a little bit. So they got to find some there. And it's, it just strikes me that their skills or their their abilities offensively are so different. Another question, or one more basketball question. This one from WVUG13 as well. Who is the best option to be the number two option? Um, that was his question. I'll add on. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Taz Sherman is number one. But he points out, is it McNeil, is it Curry, or is it Bridges? I'm still going to hold on to my Bridges stock. I, I just think that that's a guy who can do something that's different than Sherman. Uh, it, nothing against McNeil. I think he's a very good number two. And again, they don't win that Clemson game if he doesn't play the way he played. But if I can get a guy that's Bridges height and athleticism who can also play well enough to rebound or whatever, but... Uh, that's a guy who could do a little bit for you on the block, who can be a really streaky three-point shooter and who pulls big guys away from the basket. If he's playing your four, that helps you out with your rebounding deficiencies too. So I would be happy with him taking and making shots as my number two. You ready for my swerve? Huh? I'm not sure I'm ever ready for the swerve, but okay. <laughs> I don't even know if it's a swerve. Is is the number two option, I'm assuming here as far as scoring goes when when West Virginia needs scoring, is it Malik Curry? If he can get his head down and go to the basket, yeah. But I think let's see what happens when teams realize he's left-handed or remember he's left-handed. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you there because it's a lot easier to score on the drive or get to the yeah. foul line and a wear-out team. So that's that's not a bad answer at all. I I think that's that's my reasoning here is that McNeil extremely streaky 
Bridges as well. And I think seeing them, I mean, Bridges hasn't made a three-point shot since Marquette. Uh, he's 0 for 7 in the last couple of games. Uh, McNeil, we've seen it. I mean, it, 1 for 8, 1 for 6 the last two games. But even that Clemson game, you know, 1 for 6 from three-point range. And, I, God, what was he? He was something terrible in the whole first half or even the first first half and the first few minutes of the second half before he finally went off and, and you know, scored, what was it, 15 points in like yeah. 15 minutes. So I, I think not to say that Malik Curry is all of a sudden some very extremely consistent offensive scorer, but you can be more consistent when you're able to get to the basket. I, I haven't seen McNeil go to the basket hardly at all. Um, I, well, actually, the only time we did see him go to the basket was that Clemson game, and that's when he, he drew a few fouls because he can make free throws. He's just not shooting very many because he doesn't drive to the basket. Uh, Bridges, don't see that too often. He's more of a spot-up shooter as well. While Curry is somebody that I think can create his own shot, as you noted, because teams forget that people can dribble left-handed. Um, I, I, it always blows my mind, I think. I guess it's just like, you know, whatever it is, 90-some percent of the, the players out there dribbling are right-handed, predominantly right-handed. And so your mind and your body just tell you to defend that way and force them left. And teams keep forcing Malik Curry, the left-handed dribbler, to the left, and he will gladly take it. And he seems to be getting to the rim a lot easier than basically anyone on the team right now. There was a game in Darius Nichols' freshman season. Darius Nichols, who we'll see soon, by the way. Uh, they played Oklahoma in Oklahoma City in one of those preseason, not preseason, but those early season invitationals. It was right around Thanksgiving or Christmas, I forget. And they obliterated Oklahoma. I mean, picked them apart, shot like 60%, didn't make a ton of threes, but just got a ton of layups because... They said Oklahoma's game plan was to extend and cover pit snoggle and beeline and air bear and guys like that, make sure they didn't run all that stuff that opened up the perimeter and they got rain threes on. And Nichols went crazy because they gave him so much space and they kept forcing him left. Problem being, Nichols is left-handed. And I, I want to say he had maybe eight or ten points. I can look it up here in a second. But I just remember that being one of those things where the scattering report did not match up with what was happening on the floor. And he just picked them apart with like left-handed layups and Curry is not Nichols, I guess. But to your point, if you don't know that, or even if you know it and you just fall asleep because you're tired and that's where he's kind of taking his, his shots on teams just late in games. It's really hard to, to reverse your brain to force a guy to go right because you're trying to almost always keep a right-handed point card from going right. So that could work in Curry's favor for a while. Um, anything else you want, definitely wanted to cover on the podcast from, uh, from the mailbag, Mike? No, that's, that's a pretty good sampling of questions there, I think. All right. Well, I will be sure to answer the rest of them in written form, and we'll have those up Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning. Um, you know, usually set that for the 5:30 slot or something like that. But we'll see. With a lot of uh, interesting recruiting news coming down, may have to shuffle things around a little bit. But it should be up Tuesday morning, uh, no later. Are you prepared for the basketball game tomorrow night? <laughs> What'd you call it? The Sean McNeil special. Oh, the the homecoming game, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're playing Bellarmine. Are you familiar with their act at all? Well, no, I'm not even sure how to properly pronounce the school. Is it, is it Bellarmine? 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 Bellarmine, yeah. So Bellarmine, okay. they do not dribble. Oh, yes. They they will pass 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times before dribble or between a dribble. They, they aggressively do not dribble. Um, and they don't set ball screens. They are just constant motion. So, like, you're you're so used to seeing dribbling exhibitions. Like, Jordan McCabe could not play for Bellarmine because if you dribble, you're probably going to take a seat. And I don't know. There's there's an I saw a stat where like the NBA does tracking for passes per possession. College basketball mm -hmm. does not do that. But I think it was the Louisville Courier Journal scouted a couple of their games and said like the NBA pass per possession is like two point eight. A Bellarmine game is like 7.8. <laughs> Normandale is thrilled. Yeah. Absolutely thrilled. And, and what they call it is pressing on offense because it's relentless. It's like it's going to be shot clocks where they might pass up a good look. They might reverse it just to reverse it again. They might cut just to cut again. Like they're going to do stuff like that just to get you. Um, into, into a situation where you're overloading on one side, you reverse it, and there's a wide-open three. They're pretty good shooters traditionally, but it's it's such a weird style of play. They just don't pass the ball or dribble the ball. They pass, they cut, they reverse, they attack inside out. 
They don't really go inside very much. They get it inside. It's on a cut, and it's not unusual to see a cut result in a kick out to the corner and then a reversal up top and an up top three. It's just wild basketball to watch. It's, it's aesthetically very different. And I mean, if you're looking at the schedule, like, why the heck is Bellerman on the schedule? Oh, Sean McNeil? Maybe. But the value here is that West Virginia's fall defense has been very good. This team is not dribbling. Like, they're not. So, like, that's going to be different. And then, sure, West Virginia has been pretty good at keeping the ball away from a guard or a scorer once he gets rid of it or making sure he doesn't get it. That's going to be at a premium on Tuesday because if it's a pass, do not let that guy get it back. That's kind of a staple of Huggins basketball. Good luck against Bellarmine because they pass it so much. And then perimeter defense is a major concern. They get a lot of open perimeter shots. West Virginia hasn't been very good at that. Um, I don't think they're going to lose, but I think they're going to have they're going to have their iron sharpened, so to speak, because they're going to have to be good at guarding passes as opposed to balls and denying passes or denying reversals, which is kind of what Huggins does. Huggins wants to play a court of the court, get the ball onto the half court, and then get it onto one half of the half court and don't let it go back. That's going to be hard because so much of what Bellerman does is reversals and cutting and motion just to get you unbalanced and to get an open shot, like a step-in open shot. Um, it, it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be different. It might not be the best game, but like if you're looking for a, you know, styles make fights, so to speak, that's those are two di- very different styles, and it could be a fun fight. A quick question for you, Mike. Make your prediction. After the game, Bob uh, West Virginia will win by 20, and Bob Huggins will be ticked off. Or West Virginia will struggle to win by six, and Bob Huggins will be cheery in the postgame. I don't know. Bellarmine's <laughs> one and five. Bellarmine's one and five, which isn't impressive, and they beat Central Michigan. But their other opponents, I, I think I want to say, are twenty nine and four. They play Gonzaga, UCLA, uh, St. Mary's, Murray State, Purdue. It's five pretty good teams, um, and they've they've gotten closer. They, they gave UCLA fits. And then they beat Central Michigan. So maybe they're playing a little bit better. But I'm not sure. Like, it's this could be a very frustrating style. I, I think it's probably safe to say the safer bet would be that Huggins is not happy after this game because this this test he's lined up for his team, it, it's not going to be easy. They might win going away, but it's not going to be easy or fun. I'm sure there's going to be times that things get exposed that he's not happy about. So, yeah, the, with Huggins, I guess the bet typically is, especially late on in November, that he's not, he's not tickled with his team after the game. Uh, update. Bellerman is two and five after a resounding win over is this Division Three Franklin night, College right? Franklin yeah. College last night. Yeah. yeah, they play at Freedom Hall too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, West Virginia went to Oklahoma City, played number seven Oklahoma at the Ford Center in 2005, and this Oklahoma team had Taj Gray. Kevin Bookout, Terrell Everett, some some pretty good players. Uh, West Virginia won 92 to 68. Mm. Shot 32 of 48 from the floor. 20 of 23 at the foul line. And just 8 of 23. 8 just 8 of 20, but those are pretty low numbers. The, the 20 especially, but the 8. Eh. But 32 out of 48 and got a ton of points in the paint in that game. Just picked them apart. And Nichols, uh, 2 for 4, sorry. But he did get the two layups, two and one. So he, was, he had a good day that day, if I remember correctly. And yeah, five assists, too. All right. Memory still works every so often. Yeah, a little bit. Bellarmin, Chris, make sure you say it right. Make sure you keep your eyes on the pressing on offense against pressing on defense. I think it's just, it's going to be fun to watch. I'm curious to see what Huggins says about that. Or, or more importantly, how many people even know about that? Because you see Bellarmin and you're thinking, that's a Division Two team, right? Yeah, they were there two years ago, but I'm not sure, sure people understand how they've been so good, why they've been so good, and why this is, again, I don't think it's a team that's going to beat them or probably even get that close, but is going to do some things to challenge West Virginia. That should be fun. Well, that's Coming what up on the we got. I was go, say, go well, that's Tuesday night, and then what? Nothing else till Saturday, right? No other. There's another game, basketball game Saturday, and then Sunday will be bowl selection day. Yes, we'll try to get some news in that. Um, I don't know if I told you this, Chris, but everybody is excited about having West Virginia and their fans. Um, and yes, just just to answer this question, yes, aware of the bowl eligibility wrinkle. Yeah. Looking into it, I'll just leave it at that. West Virginia will be in a bowl game. Fine. I was looking I was looking into it last week and to the point that you, you asked me about it before the game, and I was like, are people talking about this? I did not realize it had taken off like it had. Now I'm looking at it now, and I'm seeing some messages, and I'm seeing some posts about people are talking about this. Um, was aware, still am aware, trying to get to the bottom of it. I have yeah. nothing to say about one way or the other, except that I think that you should be okay. Not solid enough? 
I'm I'm relieved, Mike. That's what that, that was a, a a pause of relief. Sounds good. Anything else on the side here? Uh, just a lot of recruiting stuff coming up in the next couple of days. Uh, coaches out and about. I, I put up my story on guys that the coaches are going to visit this week, and then got notes about a couple guys who got visited yesterday. So I'll be putting that update uh on the site shortly, and then. A um, couple updates on some other uncommitted players at West Virginia tried to target late and, and their chances with those. Those will be going up later today. And, and again, more updates on commits and where they've been because a couple other a couple other commits took visits elsewhere. So we'll have updates with them, too. Sounds like a big VIP time on the board. Only one way to get all the information for 75 percent off. You have to the end of the day to do that. Please don't let that group of five team finish ahead of us. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Mike Casaza, and I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you later.